Just a note before we start. Our show talks about touchy subjects that may be difficult for some of our listeners. Take care of yourself. If you feel you need to seek help, see the links at the end of our show notes for resources. Welcome back to Touchy Subjects. I'm Sean. And I'm Amanda. And today we are joined by special guest, Kara Tuttlebelt. So thank you for joining us, Kara. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so Kara, do you just want to quickly introduce yourself to our audience? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, my name is Kara, as you've heard. Um, I'm trained as a lawyer. I have a master's degree in gender and sexuality studies. Um, most of my uh, primary work has been in higher education for the past almost 20 years now. Um, so I've worked in university women's centers, and now I run a center that's devoted on sexual harassment and assault prevention um, and victim support services. And I teach uh, occasionally classes on gender and sexuality studies. In my spare time, I have uh, been working and providing workshops on assertiveness training, which is what brings me here today. Yeah. Um, when we got your message about the assertiveness training stuff, I was like, oh, that's awesome, because that's definitely not something we have ever really talked about on our show. Um, but it is definitely something that is incredibly important in helping in the spaces of domestic and sexual violence prevention, because it's one of the things that we don't often teach girls. It is, and it's um, come in waves, right? So it's been a trend in uh, really, I think, the mid to late 70s, we saw the birth and some rapid growth in assertiveness training, and then it really died down for about 20 years. Then in the mid 90s, we had a little surge again, and then it went away. But we began getting requests for it um, about three years ago at work. And I've always been passionate about it. I've been reading about it myself. I've been on my own journey to become more assertive over really my entire lifespan. And so we began offering the workshop and it's been really popular. So I'm glad to see that this is making a bit of a comeback. Yeah. So we're really excited for the wealth of knowledge that you're going to bring to this podcast today. And, um, you know, just talking about assertiveness in general, especially to women who, you know, historically have been told that their assertiveness just kind of coincides with bitchiness, basically. I mean, as a blunt way to put it, but that's that's what we've been taught our entire lives. So um, to be able to hear from somebody who has all of your experience and all of your knowledge and to just get a little bit of information about assertiveness and how it can benefit our lives um, and not just women everyone and I, I just I'm really looking forward to this episode so thank you so much for joining us thank you I mean you you really hit on a, a key point um, because assertiveness training is often divided up into kind of an assertiveness 101 and what that tends to attract are people who feel like they're hesitant or timid or unsure of how to engage but also really popular workshops Workshops are on using assertiveness strategically. And so some of my participants who maybe already think of themselves assertive, but find themselves being interpreted as aggressive, learn some skills to really hone that. 
And then of course, if it is a bunch of nonsense where we're just experiencing bias, right? Where we're not showing up any differently than um, often men who get credit for being really incredible leaders. So it's all of the above, right? It is a skill we can learn. It offers um, some usefulness for personal and professional development. It is useful in some situations, not all, but some for risk reduction, but also we have to work at um, combating and reducing unconscious and conscious bias. That means we're getting interpreted differently as we show up in these different spaces. Yes, absolutely. Oh my gosh. So um, I guess, how how do you want to start this conversation, Kara? Do you want to, Kara? Kara? Kara. Kara, dang it. <laughs> you know, I had that in my notes too, because you're Care Bear, right? <laughs> yes, yes. No. We'll, we'll cut that part out. Okay. No, we won't. No, we won't. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're taking away, like, not everybody gets to call me Care Bear. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in there, Kara, I want to hit on something that you pointed out, because assertiveness training can be used as a risk reduction tool um, but not necessarily only for women, because if we're teaching guys to not interpret assertiveness as them being bitchy or being mean, it shifts how we view women then. Because if we know that committing violence against somebody else requires you to view that person as lesser than yourself, if men are learning that when a woman is being assertive, it doesn't mean that they're being bitchy. It means that they're setting those boundaries that shifts how we view them to say, okay, so this person as my equal is setting a boundary with me. They're not being mean. They're trying to tell me what they want or don't want to have happen. Right. Um, the most recent workshop I gave was for a group of graduate students. And I think they thought they were coming for one reason, but they learned that like some of the men in particular stopped by and they were like, this was really illuminating. I hadn't considered it, you know, in that way. Um, so it does teach both, right? I mean, it's, it's really about clear communication and setting and maintaining boundaries. That's the goal. That's the takeaway. Um, sounds easy in theory, but it's, it's harder in practice. That's why we have training sessions and workshops and exercises. But yes, it's, it's about that clear, direct communication, which is both being given and has to be received. And so we're teaching people to think about how they're engaging and analyze that behavior on the other side of the table or, or next to them at a bar, wherever they are, right? Um, from a different lens that hopefully is less gendered in, in harmful stereotypes that a lot of us have been raised with. Right, and if we start teaching people from a young age that assertiveness is really just maintaining your own boundaries, then they can grow into people who don't have to fight that stereotype and that bias in their life. So they just know from a young age that, okay, this person's being assertive about this boundary because they feel strongly about it. And it's my job to respect that boundary. Absolutely. And I think it's never too soon to start. You know, I do work on a college campus, so I'm getting people around age 18 or older. But yes, I'm always wishing that we just introduce this in kindergarten, right, in an appropriate way. 
or before, right, through parenting. Um, and then the conversation evolves, right? We're not having the same conversations at different points along the way, but boundaries, consent, unwanted touching, unwanted pressure, those are conversations for every age and stage of development. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's not very much different than us and old episodes where we've said, like, have conversations with your kids about consent, but it doesn't necessarily have to be revolved around a sexual encounter. Like, there are other ways to talk about it. Like, if you're leaving a family party and your kid tells you they don't want to go hug grandpa goodbye, don't force them to do it because you're teaching them then their consent doesn't matter. When your daughter is setting a boundary saying, oh, don't be bossy, like, that's teaching her actively to not want to set those boundaries, to not be assertive and say what she wants, because the last time she did, she was insulted for it. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I have found really resonate with parents, um, and it is mostly women who come to these workshops, right? But so with a lot of moms who believed in, probably were raised the same way, but then perpetuate the message that children should be seen and not heard or that young women should be seen and not heard. This is so concerning to me, right? So I actually want them to raise angry girls, right? I mean, I love boundaries. Um, yes, it's difficult. I'm sure I was difficult as a teenager, but I'd take it any day over someone who thinks they have to sit in silence who can't establish boundaries. So they usually laugh a little bit, but they do think differently about the messages that we're sending because we're so afraid of assertiveness. It's not about being rude. It doesn't mean we don't value politeness. You can be polite, but firm. You can be considerate, right? It really is about setting your own boundaries, maintaining your own boundaries, and engaging fairly and directly with others. It's also like one of the things that I just find kind of weird when we often end up discussing like assertiveness. Like I want my friends to be truthful and honest with me and tell me if I do something that is messed up or if I'm doing something that they don't like me doing. Now, sure, sometimes when our friends do that, they don't always phrase it the best way, but they're doing it to help us. They're coming at it from a perspective of, I'm your friend. I want you to be the best version of yourself. So while, yeah, maybe we sometimes respond with anger, like, well, why are you thinking this about me? They're coming from a place where they want to help. And this is the same thing with assertiveness. If we're not allowing for kids or parents to have these discussions with their kids about, okay, my kid is setting this boundary with me. This kid is being assertive. What am I doing that is the requirement for them to set this boundary and how am I responding to it to allow for them to feel like they can continue to set those boundaries and be assertive with me? Because if I'm responding with anger, I'm, I've lost them. Right. And it really does hold the power to improve every type of relationship we have. I think a lot of people think about assertiveness, uh, maybe in adulthood every three to five years or so when they think I need to negotiate a salary or I'm applying for a new job. And, um, you know, the women at work reach out to me a lot. I'm kind of known as their like go-to cram session salary negotiation trainer, and I'll do it. I'm happy to do it. I type out via text a lot of scripts to people, you know, although my main advice is mostly get off the phone, right? So like say your ask, your firm statement, keep it pleasant, and then get off the phone because that's actually not assertiveness as a skill. That's not assertiveness training. They're cramming the night before. So that's never going to be the best way to do it. What I like 
about assertiveness and what I think is that it's really for our everyday interactions and it's for all relationships. It's for our relationships with kids. It's for our relationships with our friends. It can be used in relationships with families, right? Some tough relationships there. Um, it is really useful in, in our personal relationships and romantic and sexual encounters as well. So I think a lot of times when we hear about assertiveness or assertiveness training, we have some narrow idea of its applicability, but I think it's all the things all the time, right? It's, it's really gonna benefit us if we are at the doctor's office, if, you know, if we're meeting someone for the first time, if we have someone who is really rude or offensive at, at work, when I started writing the book, I really was thinking of it narrowly, and then each chapter just sort of wrote itself as I was like, well, no, we can apply this um, wherever you need it. I think the ability to see assertiveness as applicable in every situation or everyday situations, not just very specific narrow ones, does kind of help be able to practice assertiveness or practice those things. The same way when we discuss consent, where we often will frame it not just from a sexual encounter, but with everything. It's like, I'm not gonna barge into my friend's house and just start eating all of their food. I don't have the consent to do that. But if we can have those discussions and explain consent or explain assertiveness in our everyday lives, it really makes it easy to flex those muscles. And be so when it comes down to negotiating that salary or it comes down to setting those boundaries with a, in a relationship, we're not having to, like you said, cram the night before to figure out how to have that conversation. It's the same concept, right? A lot of people are asking for and navigating consent all day, every day. They're just not labeling it consent, but we are used to doing it. Um, the pandemic has given us really good opportunities to say, look, you're actually having consent conversations, but we're also having boundary conversations. So you know, I know you two in particular can see the overlap here with the work I do and how I got into assertiveness yes. training. Sometimes I'd show up and people are like, why are you doing this workshop? And I'm like, well, it's actually all connected. It really is. <laughs> yeah, and that's one of the things we try to hit on to a lot with pretty much everything. It's like everything is connected to everything. It's mm -hmm. like you don't to, for example, like you don't have to be doing sexual violence or domestic violence prevention work to do prevention work around domestic and sexual violence. It's like, yeah, the three of us, that's kind of our focus because it's what we're paid to do. But the person who is working at a bar, who is making sure that people are having boundaries and respecting other people's boundaries in their bar, they're doing that prevention work still. If you're doing work around creating more green spaces in a community, we know that more green spaces help reduce cr violent crimes, which domestic and sexual violence are violent crimes. So I mean, it's all connected. I completely yeah. agree. My, my students in my classes, they know, cause I'm like saying it's all gender and sexuality studies at all. It's everywhere. You know, I'm like, you can talk about whatever you want. Sometimes they are trying to get me off topic and I'm like, it's not off topic, right? It takes all of us. <laughs> and I tell students too, different students that I'm not coming to your parties. Like you cannot rely upon the people that work in my office to do all of the prevention work. We are not going to be there. So if, if we want a safer, more equitable, more just, fairer world, everybody has to do it where they are with what they've got. And I think consent training, prevention training, bystander intervention training, assertiveness training, whatever it is, you can learn those lessons that you will put into place, whoever you are, wherever you are. It can't just be uh, people who work in prevention. 
Although we try, we try really hard to do as much as we can. Yeah, I like to clock out sometimes. (laughs) It's a boundary that we have set for ourselves so that we can show up and do it all again the next day. Right. And, you know, to all of our listeners who are out there, we're not saying that you have to go take an assertiveness class, that you have to go take a course on consent. Like, just being aware of those issues, listening to people who are out there, just listening to the podcast, doing any of those things gives you some of those skills that you can take with you out into your everyday world. There are so many free ways to practice this, right? You do not have to buy a book or sign up for a class. I completely agree. There are books out there. Um, A lot of the assertiveness books are from the 70s or the 90s. Um, (laughs) There is a new one as of 2021, which is my own, but they're all all good. Um, If you use the older ones, you are going to have to like let go of some of the really dated material, but there's good lessons in there. But if all we take away is is what we've already talked about, what Sean, you were talking about in particular is taking a moment, taking a beat just to receive the feedback. That would really be growth, right? Because a lot of times we do get defensive and then we're like, whoa, but we got to remember that these people like us, these people love us or we love them. And so where is that message coming from? If we could practice receiving direct communication a little bit more smoothly, that would be a, a valuable lesson learned. I'd also point out these are also valuable lessons for those of us like the three of us who do this work already because it's very easy for us to do like a prevention training and then have somebody in the audience get defensive and then once if we don't understand why somebody is being defensive around something there's no way we can fully address that without potentially just fully shutting that person down and once they're shut down we've lost the ability to teach them anything or to even change the way that they think, because if they shut down, they probably have just stuck another foot in the ground saying, yep, this is my thought now. I know. I mean, they may come in apprehensive or with a wall up, or they might not like the way we said something. I mean, I talk all of the time and, you know, I'm always terrified. I'm going to say something the wrong way, uh, say something I don't really mean, you know, your brain is thinking one thing and the different things come out of your mouth the more you engage and speak publicly, the more you're at risk for this. And so you, you really want people to give you that moment. Um, I don't think it's really effective if we shift the whole focus of a workshop or a training to that person who's become defensive. Um, there are always ways to address it. When we do work like we do, we're so personally invested um, that you know we have feelings about it and people have feelings about the topic. And so it can be really tough to engage consistently and not offend people or not take their offense so personally, it helps, you know, when I'm like coaching my team to remember that, you know, we're, we're the anti-sexual violence people on my team. We're right. You know, we're right. Like we have like the moral, we have the cause behind us, but we also have to be effective communicators, right? So we have to be persuasive and we have to be clear and we have to, sometimes endure defensiveness or dislike of what we're about and how we show up. Um, And that we know things like we're trying to do comprehensive education that takes time. There's no one poster, there's no one workshop that can cover everything. Um, And so, you know, I also think assertiveness is is keeping going in the face of, of those challenges as they come up. 
So, Love it. so really looking at the assertiveness training then as a whole, I know you mentioned that you kind of like split them up into two different workshops. So really what do those two workshops look like? Um, so to start with, with like many things, we start with some self-reflection. I think it's actually very important to start with easy, easy, you know, easing into the, to the topic. I think people are afraid it's going to be um, a, like, we're going to throw you in the deep end and make you swim situation, which keeps people from showing up. So you have to make it seem approachable and doable and introvert friendly. So I, I message, you know, clearly from the get-go that I'm not going to call on you. I'm not going to summon you to the front of the room and make you act things out. I always give a workbook or some worksheets um, and really let it be in an individual path for each participant. Now, the more I interact with them, the more coaching I would do because you do eventually have to try, right? You have to test these things out. So it can't just live in your head, but we can really start on... Um, some, some self-reflexivity, right? So where have there been moments, and I have them write them out, like think of scenarios where you didn't show up the way you wanted, or you didn't get what you wanted out of a meeting or out of an interaction. And so they can pick whatever they want, whatever prompted them to come to a workshop, um, whatever happened yesterday and fresh on their mind, and reflect on, I mean, really what they are being hard on themselves about, but where they're frustrated with the other person involved too. And so we just write that out. Um, and I think, because we're all busy and we're all just going from thing to thing, that we're not going in intentionally doing the work in some of these meetings that where prep work would have been really useful. And so this is to get them thinking before the next meeting or the next conversation, how do I wanna structure this? What are the key messages I wanna get across? Am I going to write those down? I can take a post-it note with me. I can put it, you know, especially in our Zoom world, you can put it on, on parts of your screen that other people can't see, which keeps you coming back to it, um, even if you're going to get emotional about the content, which a lot of times people do. So initially, it's about self-reflection and some setting some structure and giving them some tools to approach it the next time. A lot of people want a script. And so we give, like I, I give them language that makes people feel better it's like having something to hold on to and give them a start with the conversation um salary negotiation is the easiest example because it's always like thank you so much i remain very interested and excited about working with your company so we're pleasant in the ask part um and then you say i'm hoping for a salary more like this and you you state a number or a range and that's where i'm like then get off the phone right because if, until you have the ability to sit in the awkward moment, people chatter and fill the time and actually walk away from their ask, like if they feel like they're asking for too much, or if they love the person so much that they really want to stay in the relationship, even if they're not honoring the boundary, you see them doing the um, minimization and really bad negotiation on their own behalf where I'm like, that's where we have to have the stopping point, right? So the script gives them a moment to sit there. And then sometimes they just need permission to leave. And, and I think they hadn't thought about that. Like you can get off the phone. You can leave a voicemail. Oh my God, that's contained. You know, I mean like that you get to control what you say and then you hang up and then the ball's back in their court to call you back. So it's just as much about 
thinking beforehand, doing some prep work. I mean, I'm big on writing notes, but to each their own, whatever form of, of technology or, you know, old school pen and paper that they're using. So do some more prep work before you go into these conversations or meetings until it becomes automatic, right? So now I can think pretty quickly, like 30 seconds, even about like, okay, what's this meeting? Who am I trying to persuade? I really think of almost all of it as persuasion, uh, persuasive communication. What do I need? What do I need? I need some sort of behavior change or agreement, or at least them not to get in my way on this initiative. So how can I? Uh, Thirty seconds is enough, but sometimes it's like, how can I dress for the meeting? How how can I show up in the meeting? How can I build some instant rapport? Um, it's it, it is about thinking of how they're going to engage persuasively, and that just takes practice. So that's really how we, we start at the basics. In the second workshop, um, or the one that's for people who are already assertive, sometimes they're showing up aggressively with very good reason. I think the feelings are probably valid, you know, like they're dealing with a bunch of um, nonsense, microaggressions, discrimination, harassment, right? Um, People don't usually come to me over the first annoyance. They come after the relationship's been entrenched and they think it's not gonna change, right? So the feelings are really valid. When you're coaching, you do have to be prepared to sit through um, a lot of their discussion, which is also necessary about how they got to where they are in this relationship or why the feelings on both sides are so entrenched. There's always feeling underneath it, right? Like, that's what we have to get to, to then help them reframe, to think about how I'm gonna use it strategically. And it is strategically, because I'm not telling people they just have to take bad behavior, even by supervisors. Sometimes it might be strategic not to exacerbate a negative relationship. And I don't want anyone to put themselves in harm's way, but reframe it to say like, how am I going to engage clearly and directly to set new boundaries if they hadn't been set before, to adjust bad boundaries that may have be in place, um, and try one more time to come to resolution in this situation before I take a, a more, you know, severe step. And that that that's tougher, you know. I mean, it's I I wouldn't say one workshop is going to do it. So usually that's what they have on their schedule, but hopefully they have someone they can continue talking to or a workbook that they can continue working through. Um, because we may all be aggressive from time to time. We may be passive or passive aggressive. It's really about more times than not, can we show up assertively and be there on that spectrum so that we are doing right by ourselves and others and not maybe steamrolling or doing ourselves more harm than good we're just sitting in the land of resentment because people can't read our mind. How can we, over time, maintain the balance that is showing up assertively? Wow. Um, that was so much. There was so much information, and there was there's so much stuff that I want to talk about. <laughs> um, so a couple of things. Like first, I just want to go back to when you were saying like practice. <laughs> and I think that's like the key thing here is just getting comfortable with yourself. You know, you if you get more comfortable with setting those those boundaries and 
smaller, safer situations, then when something larger comes up, then you're, like you said, not cramming for it at the end of, oh my gosh, what can I do at this point? You've got all of your experience and you know, you know, you still, you still need to like refresh on some of those things, but you know what you need to do. You know what you need to say because you know where your own boundaries are. Um, and I don't even remember how I started thinking of it, but at one point you got me thinking about like, if you're in a social situation, you're at a bar, someone comes up and they want to engage with you. They want to dance. They want to ask you out on a date, whatever. So many people are so conditioned to play that nice card. You know, you don't want to just blow them off. You don't want to just tell them no and walk away, you, you know, so you entertain that conversation for longer than is necessary and you don't give yourself the permission to say, you know what? No, thank you. I'm not interested and leave the conversation. I think there are a few free baby step practices that I would want people to to start with. So it can be as simple as not moving out of the way on the sidewalk. So you're going to play a little bit of game of chicken as you are navigating the world. Because why do you have to be the one who moves? And are you the person who moves every time? Are you stepping off the sidewalk into the mud? Why? Why are you doing that? You don't have to be that person. Now, yes, sometimes it is the polite thing to do. We are assessing a person's um, overall condition and we move out of the way. The exercises for those of you who always are the one who moves or who always takes the middle seat on the plane or who always um, assumes they can't have the armrest on the plane, right? If that's you, then we can start that small and that's okay, right? Because a lot of us have been socialized and trained to be pleasant at all times. I like to use pleasantness strategically also, but not as a as a way of life um, because you you have a right to have boundaries um, if you have trouble communicating you know verbal boundaries then I would suggest you start in whatever safe situation you have so raise your hand in class when you do know the answer so you're not having the surge of panic when you're called on and you don't know the answer right so it's practicing about you know, where can, where do I feel safe doing so? And maybe you don't feel safe, but listen to others. I remember doing this in undergrad where I was in, in classes and there were people who participated all the time. And I think, oh, well, you know, I knew that, or that's not remarkable yet. Here they are just participating freely. You know, they don't seem self-conscious. When you pay more attention to others, you're going to see that very rarely are they saying something that is so profound, but they're participating. So go ahead and participate at that level because you probably do have profound thoughts that we want, but you, you know, you're not going to jump and surge one day and share them with us. You're going to have to, to practice. Um, and raising your hand in the meeting when you feel safe, talking more in a professional setting is actually going to have the added benefit of, of helping you do that in these personal moments. In the uncomfortable social situation, Try indirect uh, assertiveness before you move into direct. So you can almost at any time excuse yourself to go to the restroom. 
So it, it isn't saying you have to tomorrow say, I do not want to talk to you. Please don't talk to me anymore to a stranger at a bar. Okay. And you can say that I'll be proud, but you don't have to start there. You can just like nod, do your pleasant social smile and then go to the restroom and then don't go back to where you're sitting. You don't have to reinsert yourself in an uncomfortable situation. So I'll take indirect um, strategies to start as we build to direct. But you also could say, oh, my friends are here or, oh, I have to take a call or look at your phone. I turn my, I just smile, you know, and then I turn away and use my body to create a barrier to talk to the person I wanted to at happy hour and, you know, not necessarily engage with the person who's coming on too strong, who maybe is looking for someone to talk to, but it's just not going to be me at this time. But, you know, I'm 44. I've now had a lot of practice at this. I would likely say like, you know, thank you so much, but I really needed to talk to, uh, you know, this person about this thing, have a good night, and then cut it off. And if you say something like, have a good night, you're still carrying forward our, you know, social expectations of politeness and pleasantness, but then you would force them to knowingly cross another barrier of like another boundary. And then if they do, you've already clearly communicated. So then I think you are very welcome to say something more forceful, but just like anything else, practice is really important. Most of us are not going to jump to like yelling a crystal clear boundary. Um, although I would respect your right to do so. If someone's touching you, you can say, no, stop touching me. That makes me uncomfortable. Those clear statements do work sometimes as risk reduction. Now, I say that very carefully because when you do consent education or prevention education or victim advocacy, in no way am I saying this will protect all of us in all situations. But there is research that tells us that responding to the boundary violation or the uncomfortable moment early on does send a message to a would-be perpetrator that you may not be worth the effort, okay? Now, that is an incomplete situation or solution because that may just shift it to someone else. So I'm not suggesting that this is a cure-all, but it is just one form of risk reduction that you might try that may or may not work because some people are just committed to violating boundaries and committing harm, regardless of what you say. So I want to be very clear about not overselling it, um, but that there are these moments when we talk to actually both people who've been harmed and people who perpetrate harm of, I wish I'd trusted my gut when they said this, or when they turned and, and they were touching my knee, or they put their hand too high on my leg, and I didn't address it then, and I wish I had. So that's really about finding these specific moments that if it feels safe for you to do so, you might try some assertiveness like communication. Um, and, you know, and I hope it works for you, but also you cannot at all um, be hard on yourself if it doesn't, because that person is, is responsible for what they're trying to do, which is not honor or violate someone's boundaries. One of the um, disclaimers that we often make around risk reduction things is like as part of presentations and stuff in terms of doing prevention work risk reduction is often involved in it but like you said Kara it's it's an incomplete piece if the only thing you are doing for prevention of domestic or sexual violence is risk reduction education you are not preventing anything 
what you're potentially doing is like you said, maybe just shifting it to somebody else. You have to look at societal belief systems and everything, which right. is a huge other discussion. But risk reduction does play a role. It's a tool for a tool belt that can be utilized, but like all tools, not, not applicable for every situation and often can sometimes not work. Sometimes not work. I mean, I definitely was in college when it was real sexist in application. Okay, so all of the messages were coming to women and people were afraid to talk about it. So a lot of the messages were only risk reduction posters in women's restrooms. I too think that is woefully inadequate and problematic and the messaging really needs to be for everyone. So I love how you framed it. I do think it's one tool in what I hope is a robust and varied tool belt. It's one of the other um, clarification points that I make too, is that the only thing you're doing is risk, risk reduction. What you have also done is give the woman who is now a victim, just a checklist to go through to say, oh, I guess I didn't do this thing. So this was partially my fault. Yeah. And we do not want to be perpetuating victim blaming in any way. No. Um, one of the other things that you pointed out in there that made me just kind of like laugh as I was listening to it was as a person who very much enjoys talking to especially new people because, you know, I'm a public speaker for a living. My girlfriend can attest that I will talk to anybody. Um, I have talked to many people on very long plane rides. Um, you learn how to also kind of understand when somebody is not wanting to engage in a conversation. So like you said, like if they just turn away from you, like solid barrier, obviously doesn't want to talk to me, mm -hmm. but like, if they're also just like not engaged in the conversation, like cheating out, like looking away a little bit, like pulling their phone out, looking at it, like that's your sign that they're probably not wanting to communicate with you. Mm -hmm. And as somebody who enjoys talking to people. You don't want to overlook that because if you're ignoring the indirect cues that they are giving you, that they don't want to interact with you, you're one, breaking their boundary that they're trying to set with you, but also made it very difficult for them to continue to set that boundary because, oh, they're ignoring this. Well, are they going to ignore if I tell them that I don't want to talk to them? Like, what's the next step of this? And it's just something that I've, I've noticed that I do and that I'm almost very quick to recognize, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to bug you. And then I'll just go back to looking at my phone or doing something else. But yeah, it was just funny to me. I was like, oh, I do that. Well, I mean, I'm glad you're conscious of it though. Like I'm not, right, if, if you're walking me through that self-reflection and adjustment, that's the dream. That's the dream yeah. scenario. So in a lot of uh, our other programs and prevention programs, we, we are trying to teach people to recognize the signs, right? Mm -hmm. And you mentioned some of them, the, um, the polite smile, but then looking away, the not, not very participatory. You don't have a right to keep ignoring that. That's what entitlement is. Like, why are you entitled to their time or their space? And that is the other side of this, right? Is that we really need all people to be doing this, this work, which is either I'm going to show up and engage more clearly and directly, or also I'm going to do a better job of observing, uh, analyzing, and respecting the messages that I'm getting in return. It is connected to prevention work, as I'm sure you both know, because there are a lot of studies that tell us that, um, and they are gendered studies along the binaries, but the, the research tells us that women think they're sending these nonverbal cues. And then we have a lot of young men, that tends to be the focus of these studies, 
telling us that it never occurred to them that that was a form of resistance or disinterest. And then, of course, if you add alcohol consumption to those scenarios, reading each other's messages becomes even more complicated. It is also funny looking at the conversation, knowing that I, as the guy in this conversation, is like, oh, yeah, I definitely am the person that will be willing to have those had like talk to somebody and at least I recognize when they don't want to engage with me. But yeah, it just kind of funny to see that. Look. I'm glad you recognize it. I don't know how many times I've been on a plane and I often have work <laughs> with me. I mean, I love actually, well, now you have Wi-Fi, but I'm not participating in this. I love being unavailable for the two hours or whatever it is on the plane. And I love to read and I'm passionate about what I do. So it's often on topic. And Often if I am traveling alone on a plane, there might be a, a businessman, you know, adjacent in some way who is, is quite friendly, trying to strike up a conversation. Now, my 40-something assertiveness self has decided that if they're going to insist upon my time or attention, they're going to get some sort of feminist lesson <laughs> out of that. So they might not be as, as glad as they, as they were to find someone to talk to. That was actually one of my favorite plane discussions that I had with somebody he was a pastor from like a, some random church in a different state, but he and I talked for like two hours about like work-related stuff. And I'm like, this is great. It is great. It is the work sometimes, you know, yeah. this is Michael. a conversation, maybe a, a disruptive moment, some cognitive dissonance for them to take with them throughout their next day or the next flight and reflect upon maybe the world isn't exactly how they thought it was. So I love this conversation where we, because we always try and talk to the introvert and tell them how to be more extroverted, right? But we never talk to the extrovert and tell them, hey, take the hint, tone it down. <laughs> no one wants to keep having this conversation. So like, that's just a huge lesson for everyone. and Everyone needs to learn from both sides of this. I am actually an introvert and Almost no one believes that at this point in my life because I do a lot of public speaking, which I actually like. And this I enjoy, but this is very contained, right? I'm just right now talking to two of you. I know there will be more listeners out there, but this is very Hopefully. different than mingling, <laughs> right? Mingling, small talk, that is so painful for me. And, you know, when I was younger and in the early stages of my career, I kept getting these messages of like, no, you need to put yourself out there, put yourself out there. And it was exhausting. And it's painful, right? And it's disruptive because it takes me a while to come down from that, right? I've turned into one of those people who, who take stealth hours at night where actually no one is emailing me or calling me and I can just have time to myself to recharge. So I actually try to put in a lot of um, stealth messaging to the extroverts to, to tell them to take up a little space and be a little bit more considerate. I hope the introverts feel reinforced in their introvertness and their boundaries and that the extroverts um, yeah. learn to use their extroversion strategically, persuasively, but maybe also in a, in a fairer way to the introverts that are undoubtedly a part of any group, any office, any team who have very valuable contributions to make. They just may be getting overshadowed. Yes. So very quickly then, before we wrap this discussion up, um, is there something that you would want the audience to know around assertiveness or like, is there a one like nugget of information you would just want them all to have? 
I, I mean, I'm glad that assertiveness is coming back in, in popularity. We've touched on it, but the main thing is it's not aggression, aggression, right? Assertiveness is not aggression. It's not showing up aggressively. That is an assumption a lot of people come in with. And a lot of, uh, you know, graduate students, postdocs, people early in their career, they'll come to these workshops reluctantly thinking they need to learn how to show up and participate in a dog-eat-dog world. This is a... A norm of American capitalism, right? It's like we got to be hungry and like climbing to the top and winner takes all. That's not my message. Assertiveness is really about building a fairer, more just, equitable meeting, conversation, office, community, world, where people are able to participate. It's about creating the conditions where people are able to participate and be heard and not be steamrolled. So that's not what we're trying to teach you to do, right? Um, so I think once you learn it for yourself and maybe you start with your salary negotiation, but hopefully you keep learning it, it for yourself, but I think it comes with a responsibility to apply it to the benefit of the community. So I like to think of assertiveness as something we need to use collectively as activism or you know, as fair treatment for use in, as we pursue justice, whatever, you know, that can look like, I think it's a tool for many a movement, many a cause. Thank you for joining us today, Kara. Um, do you have any socials or anything you want to throw out to our audience? Yeah, if you'd like to learn more or, or find me online, um, I am at Kara Tuttle Bell on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And uh, my website is karatuttlebell.com. The book is Drowning in Timidity on Women, Politeness, and the Power of Assertive Living. You can find that on Amazon, on walmart.com, and on my website. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you all for listening today. Please feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Touchy Subspod. Email us any questions, comments, or concerns to touchysubjectspodcast at gmail.com. And please rate us on your favorite podcast listening app. It really does help the show out. And in the meantime, don't be afraid to challenge, ask, and discuss when it comes to touchy subjects.